Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into this very rich topic of theology of the body. We have been in Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, that is a reflection on the first half of Benedict XVI's encyclical Deus Caritas as God is Love. And it really has afforded us the opportunity from one Thursday to the next to really engage the relationship between God and our sexuality. Certainly uh, two very big topics, and you, you put them together, and, and you have some most intriguing subject matter. So this is what we have been about over the last uh, five, six months. And every third week at this pace, I've had Ivan Moore and Chris Seibert with me. They will join me uh, next week. Uh, to pick up where we leave off today, this evening. Um, So with today, we are going to get into chapter four of The Love That Satisfies, that is uh, titled True Eros. But before we go there, I thought we could uh, consider this virtue of recollection. And uh, I'm going to consider this virtue of recollection and lead with it, because it not only, I think, summarizes what we talked about in chapter three, that unity of body and soul, but at the same time segues into what we want to get into as it relates to true eros. Okay, so what do we mean by recollection being a virtue? You have heard me say in the past on a number of occasions that we are called to draw back and to assess a situation. Well, that really is a part of what the virtue of recollection is. Uh, So to have a better understanding of what recollection means we have to recall really the structure of our existence, that existence that goes back and forth between silence and speech. Okay, so the first then mode of of our existence is the interior life of the person, the center. While it would not be easy to explain what the center is, I think generally speaking, when, when you hear the word center, we know what we want to, to get after, huh? That point of inward relation, that which makes of, of our powers, our characteristics, attitudes, and actions. Not a confused chaos, but a unity. Okay, that is the interior life, the silence. Okay, this is what we mean by uh, the first mode of our existence. The other is the connection of external things, events, circumstances and relations. It is the other person's, their way of life and their actions, their history. In short, it is the world insofar as the individual has the power to survey it and the ability to experience it. So again, you have this kind of back and forth from from silence and speech, from the interior world to the exterior world. The great theologian you've heard me talk about on this radio program before uh, Romano Gardini breaks this open beautifully, and he calls these two poles, right? That uh, 
The interior life is the first pull, and the exterior life is the second pull. So between these two poles, if we're going to use the language of Gardini, the center in us and the world about us, our life moves. That is the language of Gardini. I love that. The center in us and the world about us, our life moves. So we constantly go out of ourselves to the objects around us. We observe, grasp, we take possession of, we fashion, arrange. Okay, this is what I intend to mean when I say draw back. And then what do we do? We return to our center and we begin to ask those questions. What is that? Why is it so? What does it resemble? And how does it differ? These kind of interior questions we begin to ask based upon what we see. Wherein does its essence consist? I mean, if we can begin to ask these kinds of questions as it relates to the meaning of God and the meaning of sexuality, we will be well on our way. I have really paused to consider this virtue of recollection a little more because hopefully you can already begin to see if we fail in our recollection, if we fail in aspiring towards this virtue, then grasping the essence, the meaning of all of these things around us is going to be impossible. We must be able to recollect the back and forth and forth and back, this juxtaposition between moving from the inside to the outside and from the outside back to the inside. Reflecting upon this further, maybe we can put it this way. If I want to do something, I do not simply work at random, but I consider its purpose and what the situation demands. I make a decision and only then do I have direction and order for my activity on the outside. After I have acted, I reconsider and test my action. Did I do things right? Was I just to the person involved? Have I done my duty? The out and back and and out and back again, it takes place not only once in our lives or once in our day, we could say, but in many ways, countless times. Maybe you're a teacher. How often one day do you go through various situations in your mind based upon what you see? You have this kind of interior conversation because of all of the external activity around you. Maybe it happens two, three, four times in just one period. So from silence to speech, we can begin to appreciate the importance of uh, the virtue of recollection, being able to assess based upon what you see. In point of fact, any good teacher will tell you that they are going to be the best teacher to the degree that they uh, survey what is before them, the language of the body and and, and, and the students, as well as their own sense of how they are approaching their craft. The virtue of recollection essentially becomes integral to any successful teacher. And for that matter, for any uh, vocational journey where one finds themselves seeking to be the best version of who God is calling them to be. So collectively then, the interior world and the exterior world are always two areas that are related to each other. Why? What happens on the outside is guided and judged by that which is within. And what is within is called, aroused, and fed by what is without. Now, if, if we ask ourselves 
what person is to be considered properly developed in this respect? The answer must be, he in whose life these two poles function in proper relation to each other. This is Gardini. I want to say that again. If you were to ask yourself the question, the properly developed question, what is man intended to be? Man is intended to be well, the best version of who God has called him to be, but he can only be that. He can only be that if he sees the proper relationship between the interior life and the external life. The interior conversation that we all have, and hopefully with God, and ultimately how that forms and informs the external activity all around us. So when we talk about the virtue of recollection, maybe we can define it this way. And once again, this is Gardini's working definition. The virtue of recollection means that a person has learned through natural disposition, education, and experience how life moves between the interior realm of personality and the exterior realm of the world, between the deep center of the person and the far-reaching whole of the cosmos. So essentially, it means that we have, to some extent, mastered the distraction and exteriorization of which we have spoken and has learned to set his inner self free and make it work effectively. Above all, the man who is able to recollect has a vision for God. He is at home with himself, a master of his inner appetite. He is not so distracted by all of the noise, the radio blaring, the television on. He's not distracted by the interior chatter that goes on when we're reading a newspaper or we're getting an update on what's going on with all of our friends as it relates to Facebook and, and Twitter and all the rest. We would be mistaken to think that the noise is something that is just external and just audible. When you start talking about the ability to recollect, it is always tied to silence. Silence, the ability to, to calm the storm within. Sometimes uh, the loudest chatter can be uh, what you don't hear. The restlessness of all the things that you're thinking about. The inability to be still. So properly speaking, we can say silence is a prerequisite to recollection with God. The ability to draw back and to assess a situation as God would want us to see it demands silence. How can you think critically about any one situation when there is noise? Huh? I mean, again, think about it. Every person that needs to make a critical decision in life, a major point in their life that is going to impact their future, and they need time, they need space. You don't go to the middle of a mall to think critically about that situation so as to better understand it, so as to better discern it. No, no, you go to that quiet place and hopefully as Christians and as Catholics, that place is your local church, your local chapel. And you ask God, you inquire, you begin to what? Recollect. And why is this important? Because again, it speaks to the unity of body and soul. It speaks to the unity of the interior life and the external life. What we see versus what we don't see. And so, what does this have to do with true eros? Well, let us consider, because we will quickly find out <laughs> as we begin to better understand what true eros is about. 
Now, if you have your book out there, um, The Love That Satisfies, or you're just following along, that's fine. I'm on page 59. And once again, we continue to draw, as Christopher West does, from Benedict's wisdom from Deus Caritas S. This is excerpt number 23 from that great encyclical, God is Love. Benedict XVI says this, It is true that Eros tends to rise in ecstasy towards the divine, to lead us beyond ourselves. Yet, for this very reason, it calls for a path of ascent, renunciation, purification, and healing. Concretely, what does this path of ascent and purification entail? How might love be experienced so that it can fully realize its human and divine promise? Here we can find a first, important indication in the Song of Songs, an Old Testament book well known to the mystics. Mm, Amen. That's a beautiful piece there. So uh, the Song of Songs, as Christopher West reflects, you know, is in many ways the Old Testament's uh, ode to erotic love. I think it might be one of the most uh, famous and well-known Old Testament books for that reason. It is often cast as an allegory of God's spiritual love for his people. It is that, but it is also an unabashed biblical celebration of the bodily erotic love of spouses. And this is why Benedict XVI draws from the Song of Songs when he wants to reflect into the meaning of true eros. In this celebration of eros, not despite it, we catch a glimpse of something divine, that sexual love celebrated in the Song of Songs is not an abandonment to lustful instinct. I think for many of us, that is the misinterpretation to some extent. If we're going to see that there is a relationship between God and sexuality, we just want to forget the whole and just go to the Song of Songs. What God wants us to see, and a point that we have emphasized a great deal here on this radio program, is that true eros flows from a profound integration of body and soul in each of the lovers. It is an eros filled to overflowing with agape. In other words, it is an eros reaping the rich, lasting fruits of inner purification. Okay, already, by using that word inner, you can well imagine the importance of what I was just talking about. Because once you use the word inner, you're talking about the interior life. And if we want to awaken what true eros is about, we must do so in light of the interior life. So, uh, let us uh, seek to offer a preliminary answer to Benedict's question. Concretely, what does this path of ascent and purification entail? First and foremost, it demands a firm commitment of the will to uphold the supreme value and goodness of the body and sexual relations against all that threaten them. Okay, that is a a big point, a point that Christopher West makes that we need to be thinking about critically. This, of course, then presupposes a clear recognition and interiorization of the body's actual value and goodness. So again, the human person is just not about their sexual values. They are not just about the collection of body parts. But as we discussed a great deal the last few weeks, we see the person in light of the whole, body and soul, 
united, created in the image and likeness of God, in his maleness and in her femaleness, we can begin to appreciate just not their sexual values, but the person as a whole. A person who doesn't appreciate, as Christopher West would say, a person who does not appreciate the value of a vintage bottle of wine will not care if it goes to waste or spoils. But the wine connoisseur is anxious to safeguard his prized Bordeaux. Point well taken, huh? Okay, what more can we say here? Well, because of the deep-rooted tendencies of the angelism and analism that we talked about a couple weeks ago in our culture and in most of our upbringings, we are in need of ongoing healing if we are to understand, see, and we can even say feel the great dignity God has bestowed on us in creating us male and female and calling us to become one flesh, calling us to union. Hence, if we are to journey on the path of ascent and purification, we must, above all, then do what? Pray fervently for God's light to flood our minds and hearts with truth, not conforming to this world, but being transformed through the renewal of our minds. That great passage that comes to us from Romans 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Mindful that the world, uh, the Greek for world is schema, agenda. You know, Satan uses the world against us. Remember his subtleness. The Hebrew word for subtle is the exploitation of nakedness. So it is. To the degree that we have interiorized the supreme value and goodness of the body and sex, we find the heart's true motivation for renouncing lust. Renunciation in the sexual sphere, if it is to lead to virtue, must always be motivated, not by fear or what some people would think today, a disdain for sex. It must always be motivated by love. Love for God, love for oneself, love for others, and love for the goodness and beauty of sex itself. Otherwise, renunciation will not lead to freedom and virtue, but interior frustration, inevitable relapse, and what so many of us have experienced further rebellion. It is in light of this that John Paul II reflects in his work, Love and Responsibility, that chastity, a word we've talked about a great deal, can only be thought of an association with the virtue of love. Its function is to free love from that utilitarian attitude. It must control those centers deep within the human being in which the utilitarian attitude is hatched and grows as John Paul II puts it so beautifully. Remember what we opened up with? This is why I was talking about the reason why we need to recollect. Because if our center is impure, if our center is not rooted in the purity of God, then what happens? That utilitarian attitude will in time hatch and wreak havoc on our soul. Control. So if the heart does not control those lustful tendencies, then sexual relations will not be an expression of love. And this is what John Paul II wanted us to see. This is what Benedict XVI is wanting us to see in his work Deus Caritas S. So they will be negation of love, merely response to that utilitarian instinct for pleasure at another's expense. We talked a little bit about that last week. So here, when we use the word control, 
it must not be thought of merely as uh, the caging of a wild beast. If at first lust must be contained by a force of will, as one progresses on the path of virtue, the beast, if you will, as Christopher West puts it, is gradually transformed so that it no longer needs a cage. I think that's an important image for us. Mature chastity. It is not a white-knuckled effort to suppress one's lustful impulses. Mature chastity liberates us from those lustful impulses, and it enables us to see others rightly and allows us to become a free and sincere gift to them. To the degree that men and women experience liberation from this utilitarian attitude of lust, they come to appreciate the beauty and mystery of sexuality with a depth, with a nobility, and an intensity altogether unknown to lust. And we are able to do this because of the grace that comes to us from the redemption of Jesus Christ. Lust, it becomes distasteful to men, to women, who discover this freedom to love in light of the grace we have received in Jesus Christ. This grace that is etched onto our very souls. Remember that image that I have talked about a great deal on this radio program, that image of sap. The word grace has that root res, it's sap. What is sap? Sap contains all of the water, nutrients, even hormones of the tree. While it protects and guards, ultimately, sap contains all that which belongs to the tree itself. When God gives us his grace, his love, we actually share in the very identity of God. Just as the sap contains the essence of the tree, so in grace we contain the essence of God, love which frees us from lust and moreover allows us to see the sexual urge is again that raw material for that more authentic love to develop. So. The answer to Benedict's question, concretely, what does this path of ascent and purification entail? It entails the cross. It entails our willingness to carry in our own bodies the death of Jesus, so that as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4.10, the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For many, this is a hard sell, I know. The luring temptations of an overemphasis on the spirit or an overemphasis on the flesh can seem like attractive alternatives to the pain of being crucified with Christ. But it is to the extent that we allow our lust to be crucified that we will experience the resurrection of God's original plan for sexual desire. Not immediately, but gradually, progressively. As we take up our cross every day and follow Christ, we come to experience sexual desire as the power to love in God's image. That is the wisdom that comes to us from the love that satisfies, and in particular, John Paul II in his work, Theology of the Body. Okay, what I'd like to do now is to come full circle a bit with some of our opening reflections as they relate to uh, the virtue of recollection Uh, the virtue that has us drawing back, assessing a situation for what it is, and through those questions in that inquiry, be able to better understand that relationship between silence and speech, Um, in particular for us as it relates to the bodies, 
the need to contemplate the meaning of something. You know, John Paul II has a whole section in his love and responsibility on sensuality. And I want to go to that section and offer up an image I think I have shared before on this radio program, even within the context of theology of the body. And what I want us to get into here a little bit within that understanding of recollection being a virtue is the need to contemplate, this need to contemplate so as to grasp the beauty of something. John Paul II explains how beauty is actually experienced through contemplation. So, for example, when contemplating the splendor of a landscape, a sunset, a piece of music or a work of art, we are taken in uh, by this beauty. This contemplation of beauty brings peace and joy. This is very different than the consumer attitude, which seeks to exploit an object for pleasure, an attitude that brings unrest, impatience, and an intense desire for satisfaction. So contemplating beauty, contemplating something before us, is what is necessary for us to grasp the inner dynamic and the inner meaning of theology of the body. So let us take up that analogy, or maybe better yet, illustration of what we talked about some months ago, that illustration of of the chocolate artist, right? There are chocolate artists out there. They have various displays. I I think in the one program I had talked about this, there was a chocolate artist in Pennsylvania. And on, on one occasion, this chocolate artist had on display dozens of elaborate sculptures of ships, flowers, birds, towers, and buildings. Now, what made these large sculptures so impressive is that they were all made of what? Chocolate. Black, brown, and white chocolate. Now, there are two different kinds of attitudes we could have towards those chocolate sculptures. On one hand, we could gaze upon them as works of art, admiring their beauty and allowing ourselves to be taken in by their immensity, their perfect proportions, the intricate details, and the workmanship, marveling at how these delicate masterpieces were made out of sugar and cocoa. Or, on the other hand, we can ignore the fact that these sculptures are beautiful pieces of art to be contemplated and view them primarily as candies to be devoured, delicious chocolates that would satisfy our cravings, essentially reducing them to mere objects to be exploited for our tasting pleasure. Okay, similarly, sensuality on its own fails to see the human body as a beautiful masterpiece of God's creation. Why? Because it reduces the body to being an object to be exploited to satisfy one's own sensuous cravings. Now, I want to take this illustration one step further. Who doesn't want to get to know the creator of the masterpiece? Huh? To get to know the creator of the masterpiece is to even get to know better the masterpiece you are marveling about. Well, why, we, why don't we do this with God's uh, crown jewel of all creation, man, and in particular, woman. Huh? I think there is a point here that we could all stand to just again recollect with that if we got to know God more, I think we would be much more interested in getting to know how we are all created in His image and likeness as He would desire for us to see. And this is what theology of the body is all about. Let us close with the word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.